For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my friend and team member, Angela Mallet. Back to Angela and Christina's desk conversation sessions, uh, part two. So um, last time we uh, had a great conversation about kind of what the world and the criminal justice system might look like if we legalize something like smokable opium or other drugs. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation after we had stopped recording, which of course always happens. Your brain suddenly feeds you things it would not feed you when you were actually recording. But we were talking about why is it so hard to have the kind of conversations that we think are possible in that world where there's, um, where drug uh, substance use disorder in particular is handled as a health issue, like where we could talk about, are you using too much or are you using an appropriate amount? Or if you're using too much, how could we decrease that use back to an appropriate amount by focusing on the stressors in your life that might be causing that? And Angela, I just had some really interesting thoughts on why that is, that that conversation almost never happens around decreasing use or managing it again back into a normal, non-problematic state. Angela, talk us through why why that conversation you think is, is so hard and rarely happens right now. Well, yeah, at first I wanted, I just wanted to share a little bit about when we finished recording that podcast, I just kind of sat for a minute was like, man, that was hard to do. It, I, it felt so uncomfortable to sit and, and think through what thing, what it would be like if we we're actually, if these substances were legal and people were using them. And, and so I think that that happens because today in our, in our world, um, there are no safe spaces to do that. Uh, there are, there are very few places unless you have, you know, like a private therapist um, where you can go in and kind of sit and feel comfortable enough talking about like your drug use and be honest about it. You certainly can't 
you know, you're not going to walk into a courtroom and say, well, I was using some cocaine last week. And, and I think I was using cocaine because I was really stressed out, you know, for whatever reason, like you're just not going to, you're just not going to do that because the expectation is always abstinence. The expectation, whether it's in treatment or certainly anywhere in the criminal justice realm, um, and that includes interactions with with law enforcement, but within judicial settings, but in treatment, uh, in, in in every every space that we have, there is this expectation of abstinence, and if you're not meeting that, then you are already failing. And so we we just really, it is rare that you have these spaces where you can go and be honest about substance use or alcohol use without judgment um, and, and explore why you're doing it. Um, even in NAA and NA meetings, I, you know, not to call them out, they're wonderful. But if you have, if you're going to an AA meeting and you have a recurrence of alcohol use. Well, when you walk in there, you know, you're, you are oftentimes, not always, it is getting better, um, but you are oftentimes, you know, if you have to raise your hand and stand up and pick up another 24 hour trip, another 24 hour chip, you know, that whole experience is, it's just terrifying. And it's, you know, sometimes can be humiliating. Like you have to come in here and say, okay, I failed and I don't have to start all the way back over. Um, So where I have seen that change over the past couple of years is in harm reduction spaces, um, particularly in harm reduction works meetings. So when uh, back in 2019, Christina and I went to this conference in St. Louis and it was uh, called the reform conference. And, and I didn't know this when, when we went up there, um, but I learned it when I was reading through the agenda, they were launching the first ever harm reduction works meetings uh, with, with a, a script and a, an agenda and you know a whole format for uh, these harm reduction self-help group meetings and so I went to the very first one it was launched in St. Louis and it's awesome so for the past three years uh, I have been going to these meetings along with 12-step meetings because you know I practice 12-step recovery but I I also practice harm reduction recovery and I have just been in awe of the honesty and the the depth of self-discovery that happens in these harm reduction spaces because people can come in those rooms with there's absolutely no fear of judgment um, and you can come in there and you can be 100% honest about how substances are now playing a role in your life and what you want to do about it. And it, I mean, it's just been the most profound experience for me as a person in recovery who, who knows that healing comes from true honesty and being able to disclose like what's truly going on internally with you. 
and, you know, I, I've seen and I have healed by being able to do that. So to see that happening in this really profound way has has made me um, very optimistic. So the difference, like in terms of just for, for people that aren't familiar with sort of how typical 12-step meetings work or how a harm reduction meeting works, like a typical 12-step meeting, you're not saying... I used to use alcohol non-problematically and now I've been getting drunk every weekend and I'm trying to figure out how to just kind of move back to that non-problematic use. Like what in my life kind of caused that tip over the edge and how can I sort of roll that back again? Like that would be a conversation no one is ever happening having in that context. Would that be correct? I would say it it happens some, but it has gotten to be where it's, it's rare because if if you do that in uh, in a twelve step meeting, you you there's a, a high possibility that you might hear something like, "Oh, well, you're just not ready yet. You know, keep coming back, or you just don't want it bad enough." You because know, the, the because the perspective is you don't need to just roll it back to non problematic. You have tipped over an edge that you have definitively yeah. cross forever and you need to stop using period. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and so, you know, the, the mindset is that total abstinence is, is the only way for you to be in recovery in a, a 12 step program. So uh, now that's not to say, I, I don't want to like blanket. I don't want to generalize too much and say like the, the blanket responses in 12 step communities are going to be this. Certainly, it's not always the case. I mean, I, even I have tried to take some of these things that I've learned in these harm reduction spaces and bring them back to my 12-step home group. Um, you know, for example, last week, I was in a meeting last week and someone came in and she she shared that she had had been going through a rough time and had had picked up drinking again. And so I chimed in and just instead of instead of taking like a shameful approach, like, do you need to go back to treatment? You know, do we need to get you checked in or find you a bed somewhere? It was just like, hey, the stuff happens and it's it. It is not a catastrophe. Um, You might want to maybe you could look at it as an opportunity. If you're using again or if you're drinking again, it's it's a sign that something is stressing you out. So use use it as an opportunity to explore what's going on, you know, and I learned that in harm reduction spaces. Hey, friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. So I want to read the opening script. Okay, so for people who don't know, if you've never been to a 12-step meeting or any kind of self-help meeting, uh, they are all pretty similar, whether you go to NA, AA, Cocaine Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, whatever. Um, They're one hour. 
and you go in and the meeting will begin. There's a, a chair, like we call it a chairperson or you could call it a host who's going to read like, welcome to this group. Can someone begin by reading how it works? And there are usually three, sometimes four already written um, readings that happen at the beginning of the meeting. And a person that's in attendance will read them. They're the same no matter where you go. You can go to an AA meeting in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. You can go to one in Egypt. They're going to be the same. And they're going to, the readings at the beginning will be the same. So harm reduction works is much, is very similar. They're one hour meetings and they're readings at the beginning. So I want to read the script for an open harm reduction works meeting for you guys. It says, this is an open group. Everyone is welcome, especially people who aren't sure what harm reduction is or, or whether it can help them. If you've been totally abstinent and or participate in other types of groups, if you're using or drinking and just beginning to wonder if there's a problem, you are welcome here. If abstinence is not your goal, or if abstinence is your goal, if you are on MAT, which is medication-assisted treatment, like methadone or suboxone, you are welcome here. If you are friends or family of someone who's using or drinking, if you're a counselor, a therapist, or you work in treatment, if you work in syringe access, you are welcome here. If you are high, you are welcome here. If you want to learn more about harm reduction for any reason, you are welcome here. I... I love that. I love every time it's read because the inclusivity of it says like we're all here because we're trying to learn to have a better relationship with substances, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever. Uh, we're all trying to learn about it. And this isn't you're all welcome here for honest dialogue. It sounds a little bit like <clears throat> my therapist. Um she, I've learned this from her. I use it with my kids now, but like her response to a lot of the things that I say is that's, that makes me curious about why that is. I wonder why you feel that way. I wonder oh, why yeah. that experience, you know, struck you a certain way, like just the word curious. She just uses it all the time. Like, you know, does that make you curious about why, you know, your child does that? Or does that make you curious about why your husband responds that way or, or whatever, you know, or she'll say, I'm really curious about why this, that, or the other. Um, and it, I thought about that when you were reading that, because that's, it's sort of the posture of the way that harm reduction sort of approaches people's substance use is not, you know, is not no matter where they are, you have the solution for them. And the only solution for them is abstinence through a particular pathway, but rather like, can, um, can we become curious about why other people are doing the things they're doing? And can they become curious about why they're doing the things that they're doing? I had a friend during COVID who said, um, this is probably like, you know, nine months into COVID or something like that. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, I've realized like, I've just started drinking a lot more than I used to. And I don't know if it's to the like problematic point or not, but I called a friend and we just committed that, you know, we weren't going to drink for the next 30 days just together. Like, I want to I want to be sure that I'm that this isn't getting out of control, that I'm not letting the the stress of covid, you know, bring me into this harmful state, 
harmful relationship with alcohol when previously he has not had a harmful relationship with alcohol. Um, so that was just like this interesting kind of random conversation where the, the possibility to, to see that there's a non-problematic relationship for, you know, 10 or 15 years, then, then a, a recognition that something is changing in that relationship and that maybe he doesn't like that change and wants to be sure that he is moving back um, to that non-problematic relationship. Like it's almost like it's, it's not thinking of it as I'm either fine or I'm like, my life is destroyed, but like, could, can we, can we catch the shift earlier so that we don't see just those like two categories? And I'm not saying that everybody only sees those two categories, but the conversation we're trying to have is there is a, you know, a hundred stair steps between, um, you know, for like not drinking, let's just say drinking, not drinking. And like you are, your life has been completely destroyed. Um, And instead of sort of saying like, it's going to be one or the other of those two things. Like, can we, can we recognize all the little steps that happen in between um, for most people and all the steps that can happen in between as they come out of that? Like it, it doesn't have to be the quantum leap. Um, it can be for some people that is what works for them. Um, but for most people with almost every behavior that humans do, quantum leaps don't work. Like the mm-hmm. change happens, you know, a step at a time over time. Uh, so that was just, uh, that's been a really interesting thing that I have learned a lot from you. It's just kind of how we've developed the ways that we think about substance use and how we can develop more nuanced ways to talk about it where the way that I see it is, is not just that for people whose lives have been destroyed, that they might find a path that works for them that maybe isn't the path that has been traditionally accepted, um, but that we could catch problematic use earlier because Mm -hmm. we're more curious about those nuances. Instead of saying, I'm not an alcoholic because I'm not living on the street. We would, we would have space to say, well, that, that, that doesn't, you know, there's a whole range of harm that could be happening in your life while you're still working and you're still parenting and all of these other things. Like we can still be curious about that harm. We can still want to roll that back. We can still want to improve our relationship with substances. Maybe that means you decide you don't want to use them again, or maybe it means you're just more cognizant of what's happening and thinking through the stressors in your life that are causing that. Like for me, my kids just went back to school. They changed schools. That is incredibly stressful for me. All things school are stressful for me. I chalk this up to the fact that I was. <laughs> says, the, says the lady who homeschooled for umpteen years. Well, how so in I the think... world is that stressful for you? <laughs> so I think this is part of the problem. So I was homeschooled all the way through. So I have this like chronic feeling that I don't understand how school works. So Uh, like put me up in front of 200 people speaking, I am fine. Put me in like the carpool line trying to figure out where to drop someone off and whether or not they have the right backpack. And I'm like a hot mess of anxiety and about to cry. And that is like, it is so stressful for me. So I'm going to chalk it up to the fact that I just always feel like I don't quite understand what to do how it works, what my role is. (laughs) So, so so 
if Shane Girard were here, um, he would say that is because you had a core belief set when you were a child that you don't understand understand how regular school works. And that core belief is still there. I am 39 years old. I'm believing that core belief. So, and I recognize like, so at the same time, I can see this is happening. And I can also see like, oh man, you know, Thomas, my husband got this big thing of peanut M&Ms at a wedding that he was in. Like, it was just kind of like part of like this random gag gift thing for a groomsman. Mm -hmm. So the peanut M&Ms, I've been like eating the peanut M&Ms at, you know, uh, a high quantity over the last Uh couple of days. But I can, I would never have really been able to kind of take that step back before kind of all these conversations and this work of thinking about like, why am I doing that? And I can, I can much more easily recognize I'm doing that because the stress in my life has increased as school started yesterday. And I was so nervous about it. And I felt like I didn't have all the things together and did the kids have what they need. And, um, and so these stressors increase. And for me, the thing, my kind of problematic behavior that I go to that's not healthy is like just eating more or snacking more or desserts or candy or whatever. Like it's kind of my my thing that I go to. Um, and recognizing that is really helpful to be able to have some compassion for that. I know why I'm doing this. It's because I'm really stressed out. It's not because, you know, I'm a terrible person who has no self-control. Could I use more self-control? Absolutely. But I can at least make the connection of why this is happening because that's the only way that I'm going to be able to change that behavior is by understanding what's driving that behavior. Otherwise, I'm just going to move on to something else. If I throw out the peanut M&Ms, I'll just go get, you know, cereal that has the highest sugar content or (laughs) something else like that. Or I'll go start buying a bunch of stuff online or I'll, you know, like... The, the stressors, as long as they're there and as long as I'm not recognizing the role they're playing in my life, my that behavior is going to come out in, a, in another way that's not yeah. helpful. Hey, friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective, and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. Right. And so thankfully you have, you have spaces to be honest about that and talk about it and recognize it and kind of, you you can do that with your therapist. You could do it with Thomas. You can do it with yourself. Um, but if your if your coping mechanism has has become a substance or or is a substance, um, let's so you know we talked about your friend earlier who noticed during COVID his drinking had picked up. Um, what if what if it's an illicit substance? Where do you go be honest about that? You know if if a person's coping mechanism of choice is using Xanax. Um, now Xanax is prescribed, so it's got a little less stigma to it. Um, but what if it's, if it's cannabis or methamphetamine, um, where are the spaces where you can go and be honest about that use? And I would, I would even argue that the more potential harm the substance has, 
the more, the, the greater the need for space to be honest about it. Mm. Right. So if you're eating M&Ms, you can eat the M&Ms for a little while before things get really out of hand, <laughs> you know, and you can talk about it publicly and people chuckle. They don't like, right. you know, hold their children closer to them. Right. But if, if amphetamine use is uh, your coping skill, um, you know, you need to be able to to discuss that rather than just hide it. And it continues to grow and grow and grow and could potentially cause problems in your life, you know, not to mention all of the, uh, the legal consequences that can come along with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of, of saying out loud, I'm struggling with this, somebody hearing that and saying, you know, I better call the police or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. So I think the thing that comes to mind when you say that, and we'll, we'll wrap up is, um, there's definitely a sense of like, Ooh, I can, like I can feel listeners. I can just feel the energy coming through the podcast line saying, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want it to be commonplace for people to be like, well, I was using meth last weekend, you know, and it just like comes up at a party or it comes up over Sunday dinner or like we, we don't want that. I don't think anybody's saying that that is what we're talking about. We're saying, can we create some spaces where people can go for that? Like I tell things to my therapist. I just don't talk about it Sunday dinner because we Mm -hmm. have some, some social expectations around things that are appropriate to share in public and things that are appropriate to share with trusted sources, relationships, particular kinds of professionals, things like that, or at a particular kind of meeting like harm reduction works or um, if you're somebody who's in AA, like there's things you share in that meeting that you probably aren't sharing out in your, your everyday life, your profession, right. with your coworker at the water cooler. Um, and that I think is, again, the nuance that we've lost. We, we kind of think about drugs in black and white when we actually have all kinds of gray in our lives for other kinds of um, issues that we already kind of know. These are the spaces where we can talk about that. So we're not saying we need to talk about it everywhere. We're saying, can we create spaces where people can talk about that? Because that's that's the way they're going to be able to address particularly the root causes of that. You you can't you can't figure that out in 15 minutes one day just sitting by yourself like that is that's a journey that we need to to create some spaces for people to be able to be on of understanding what's happening inside of them, what's driving that use and then how to how to address and heal those things and develop other coping mechanisms where can they be for that journey? We want to see more yeah. of those grow. I want to, before we wrap up, our, I, I want to share a story that that has stuck with me for the last couple of weeks. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Nashville for the National Drug Court Conference. I don't remember if we talked about that on the last episode. So if it's redundant, forgive me. There's been some time since then and now. Uh, anyway, so I was there and there were you know thousands of people from all across the country who work in treatment courts, veteran courts, mental health courts all over the country. And I was there to speak about harm reduction. And, uh, and afterwards I, I met a judge that it presides over a drug court in another state. And she shared a story with me, you know, she came out and she was like, I really appreciate, appreciated what you said about harm reduction. And I'm trying to practice that in my courtroom Um, She said, I had a participant who's a veteran and he had been uh, addicted to methamphetamine and, you know, 
that spiraled into him having gotten arrested for a crime she didn't tell me when all but somehow he ended up being on on drug court and he did well for the first year and a half and then kind of just out of nowhere he tested positive for THC and then the next week he tested positive for THC and methamphetamine again and so she and, and he was honest about it um you know, it showed up in his drug screen and he told his case manager, he said, yes, I did use. And so when it was time for him to come in front of the judge, the judge could have easily just sanctioned him and sent him to jail. You know, and so, you, so when you when you progress in intervention courts uh, and you have a sanction, so let's say he's probably in phase two or phase three, if he's been in there for a year and a half. Um, the common practice is to make you start over. And so the judge very well could have, and in many courts they do, when, if that happens, well, you have to start over and you know now you need to, to go back to treatment or, or whatever. And, and there's a jail sanction that comes along with it. But this judge said, I decided to do something different with him. I, I was really curious why. And so I talked to him and said, you know, what happened? He said, I, I first used marijuana and then I decided I didn't like that so I ended up using drinking and using methamphetamine and so in conversation with him she found out that his um like his combat partner that he had been in combat with you know his partner or buddy or however that works uh had just passed away and mm -hmm. and he heard the news and it just it triggered him and brought back all of these memories and grief. And, and so he used again. And so she did not sanction him for that. They did, you know, adjust his treatment protocol to make sure that he had some extra supports going on, uh, but she didn't send him to jail and she did make him start over. And I just thought, I was like, mm. now, wow. that is harm reduction at work in our criminal justice system. And, and I just had to hug her neck. I was like, this is mm. wonderful. I'm so glad that you're doing it. That's awesome. It's a good note to, to end on. Join us back next time. We'll jump into the next Christina Angela office chair sessions. Thanks for joining Let's us. See you for good podcast. Goodbye. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach by inviting one person at a time to change their mind, change minds, are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.